Let's pray together. Father, we would pray in your mercy and grace that you might do the thing that you do so often, which is come near to us, even as we draw near to you. Our drawing near to you is incomplete. It is mixed. And yet your coming near to us is whole and complete and thorough. And so would you do that now, Lord, as we look into your word, at the preaching of your word, would you draw near to hearts and to minds? For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Earlier this month, my family went to Colorado to visit Paisley's sister and her family. We had not been out there in a very long time, and so it was really good to be with them on their turf. And one of the things that we were excited to see was their house. Over 10 years ago, they bought a, a pretty rundown house, and they've been renovating it a bit by bit, phase by phase, and they've done a really extraordinary job with it. One of the things I loved about their house is that there's lots of light, lots of windows, lots of open space. It kind of mimics the landscape around them in Colorado that you can move freely and roam around, which was a good thing because we added a family of six to their family of three. (laughs) What you see in their home is very attractive and it's enjoyable and it's very livable. But there was a lot that went into the construction and the renovation that you don't see. And I wouldn't have known about it if my brother-in-law hadn't pointed it out. He explained that parts of the house were supported by steel beams that were resting on steel posts, which were resting on concrete footers. It was a very well-constructed house. The visible parts of the house, the spaciousness, the openness, that which one could enjoy, were supported by a structure, by a foundation without which the house wouldn't have stood at all or at least would have been very unstable. Well, last Sunday, we began our focus of the presence of joy in our lives. And if you hadn't uh, heard that sermon, uh, it is on our website and you can go back and listen to it and I would encourage you to do so because there's lots of different parts of joy and we need to uh, access it and think about it in different ways. So last week, we looked at Psalm 30. And we saw that Christian joy is not just something that we happen upon. It's not serendipitous. It's cultivated. And Psalm 30 showed us that one way that we cultivate that joy is by remembering God's past faithfulness. Remembering God's past faithfulness. That act somehow enriches the soil of our hearts and allows joy to grow. So that was our gardening metaphor. That's last week. This week, I want to use this construction metaphor. You see, I can go visit our family in Colorado, and I can enjoy their house, and I don't need to know how it's constructed. But if I wanted to duplicate that house to be the place where I lived, then I would need to know something about what's below the surface. I'd need to study the kind of structure used to support it. I'd need to understand steel beams and posts and concrete foundations. In the same way, if if we want to take a happenstance approach to joy, just treat it as something that we stumble upon from time to time, then we don't really need to know much about it. But if we want joy to be the place where we live out our lives, 
and we want that joy to have some stability to endure in good times and in bad, then we need to know something about how joy is constructed. Specifically, we need to be aware of the supporting structures of that joy. This Sunday and next, we're going to consider Psalm 16. And if you've ever read Psalm 16, it is a wonderful psalm. It's dripping with joy. As you read it, it just begins to kind of vibrate with something in your soul, exciting us, calling us upward into the depiction of joy that it lays out. So if you brought your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them to Psalm 16. Let me just note briefly um, how the psalm is constructed, because that's going to have a lot to do with how we're looking at it this week and next. I think if you want to look ahead to verse 9, I think verse 9 is the high water mark of the psalm. It's the peak of the mountain. This verse is an incredible description of joy. He says, therefore, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. That's a high statement. It's very lofty in some ways. And it might feel a bit unattainable, like, oh, wow, that's special for him. And yet, I I don't think that what he's describing in verse 9 is something that needs to be foreign to us. That kind of full and secure joy can be more than just a place that we visit on occasion. It can be the place where we live. But we need to know the supporting structures of that joy. And that's what we'll get in the rest of the psalm. It shows us how this wonderful expression of joy is constructed. So today, from verses 2 through 8... We're going to consider four vital supporting structures of joy. Next week, from verses 10 through 11, we'll look at another one. And if you like mental pictures, you can imagine that verses 2 through 8 and these four steel posts that we're putting up. And then next week will be like a steel beam that we lay on top of those. For the four posts, I've given each of them a name. A radical singularity a people to party with, I'll explain that one, a priestly portion, and a counselor worth staying up for. That's where we're going. So first, a radical singularity. Look at verse 2. He starts by saying, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. That sounds a little funny, doesn't it, in English? But look a little closer if you have your Bibles with you. Look at the first Lord. It should be in all capital letters, but not the second Lord. These are actually two different words that are being translated by the same English word, Lord, unfortunately. Whenever you see Lord, L-O-R-D in caps, in the Old Testament, it's translating the covenant name for God, Yahweh. The second Lord is translating the word Adonai, which means master or sovereign. So in verse 2, what he's actually saying um, is, you, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you, the covenant God, the one who has revealed himself as Yahweh, you are my sovereign. You are my Lord. Now again, that might not sound that radical to us. Okay, great. That, that's good. I'm glad God is his Lord. Of course, God is his master. That's what we would expect um, the psalmist to say. And King David, if that's who wrote the psalm, we would expect him to say that, Right? But what we need to realize is that the context for the whole Bible, Old Testament and New, is a thoroughly polytheistic world. It was normal. 
to worship lots and lots of different gods. People in the ancient world had gods for everything. Christians, actually, early in the Roman Empire, were called atheists because they only believed in one God and they refused to pay homage to the pantheon of Roman gods. And so when we read this statement of the psalmist saying, Yahweh is my master, that's a radical singularity. Very abnormal in their culture to devote themselves only to one God, and especially if you were going to do that, to pick such a second-rate God as Yahweh. Because in the ancient world, among all the different gods that there were, the God of the Jews, this little fledgling country that could hardly hold on to their land, well, why would you pick him? The psalmist goes even further. Still in verse 2, he makes this statement. I have no good apart from you. So he's not just saying, as is popular today, hey, my God, my religion, my philosophy, it's good for me. Yours is good for you, so that's okay. You're good, I'm good, we're good. No, he's not saying that. He's saying there is no other good apart from Yahweh. He's the only show in town. If you want good, you can't find it with Baal or Marduk or Zeus. It's Yahweh. To say that publicly is a bold statement. Scandalous then, it's scandalous now. In the same way that we would say that there is no other name under heaven where salvation is found except for Jesus Christ. There is no other path to the one God who is there except through Jesus Christ. That is a scandalous statement to make. And some of you here today might might be offended by that. It's not meant as an offense. It's not meant to hurt your feelings. It's actually just meant to say this is the way things are. To tell you any other way would just be to lie. It would just be to perpetuate some false source of good and salvation. So to say it publicly, that's a big statement. But really, he's actually saying something personally. Despite all the good things that life offers this psalmist has somehow come to realize that there is no good apart from God. There is a singular source of goodness. Now, Yahweh can express his goodness through a plentiful harvest, through good weather, through a loving family, through peace and prosperity, but apart from him, all of it turns to dust. It is his hand, it is his hand alone that is giving and sustaining all the good things in life, even our very ability to breathe. Were he to remove that, it would all be gone. So this radical singularity, to God as our only master and Lord, to God as our only source of good, is a vital supporting structure of joy. And there's a very simple reason for this. I think it's another prophet, Jeremiah, who says it well in chapter 2, verse 13 of his book. Speaking for God, he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God is the only fountain of living waters. He's the only source of joy and goodness. Every other place we look is a broken cistern that can hold no water. Every other source we look is a leaky bucket. It will not fill us up. And it's not that God is holding out on us. It's not that he's being prudish and and keeping us from enjoying other good things. 
there are no other good things. Maybe it seems like there are for a while, but in time, those will fade. I think the reason that Christians, I think the reason that myself speaking to me and for me, that I often experience diluted joy or infrequent joy or unstable joy is that we, I want God, but I want something else as well. And if we have that divided loyalty, if we're looking for another source, we won't find it and our joy will suffer. So friends, has anything crept into your life that if you're honest, if you slow down and you really examine it, is a rival source of joy? You're looking to it to provide you with joy? Could be something small. Could be something large. But are there any leaky buckets that though they don't satisfy you, you keep picking them up and you keep trying to use them to fulfill yourself? Toss them aside and go to the source, the only source of joy. The second steel post that supports joy is a people to party with. Look at verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So the psalmist delights in God as his source of joy, his source of good, that we saw that in verse two, but here we see that he also delights in the people who are delighting in God. Those are the people that he wants to party with. Those are the people who are celebrating and rejoicing in Yahweh. That's who he wants to get down with. In verse four, however, he makes a contrast. He tells us about another group of people. And he says about them, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So the people who we are delighting with, the saints, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with them, delight in them and with them in God. But those who are running after other gods who have filled their lives with these leaky buckets, I don't want to get entangled with them because their sorrows multiply, not their joy. I spent four years in college, and the first two, I dove in with the leaky bucket brigade. Now, I was a Christian, and so my first year, I I tried very hard to do the Christian thing and to resist the temptations of college But I felt alone in it, and it didn't last. And so I picked up the leaky bucket, and I went to town. And I'll be honest, it was really fun for a while. But then the water drained out, and I was really, really empty. Summer between my sophomore and my junior year, the Lord met me in a powerful way, surprising way. And he showed me in all sorts of new ways that he was the only fountain of joy. But one of the ways that he met me, and then one of the ways, more importantly, that he sustained that joy was through his people. Who was I delighting in and with? Who was I partying with? First two years, the Leaky Bucket Brigade. The second two years, the saints, which God had provided kind of out of the woodwork. It was really quite amazing. Guess which years were more joyful? Guess which two years gave me sweeter memories and enduring friendships? See, friends, joy is not an individual enterprise. 
It is something sustained in community. And in the New Testament, we have lots of pictures of that communal joy. Acts 2, one of these descriptions of the early church, we're told that the believers were together regularly with glad and generous hearts. Later, Paul, writing to the Philippians, said to them, you, you church, you are my joy and my crown. Writing to the Romans, Paul says, rejoice with those rejoice. Rejoicing is like this commodity that we, we share among ourselves. And then John, writing in his first letter, chapter one says that we are writing you these things, we are sharing with you these things about Jesus. Why? So that our joy can be complete. Something about sharing together in fellowship, in Christ, creates and completes joy. God designed it that way. Koinonia, fellowship, sharing together, that's what creates, sustains joy, and it's virtually impossible to sustain joy without the saints. And so friends, do you have Christians in whom you delight and with whom you delight in the source of joy? By all means, have non-Christian friends. Don't hear this the wrong way that you should go out and abandon all them. But to sustain joy, it is vital that we have this Christian community. And that's my hope for King of Kings. Whoever we are, whatever we become, that we would be this community of joy where people from all different places, all different backgrounds would come and they would find in this place a community that's delighting in God. Now you can come to this church and people often do and they come and they go and they enjoy the worship, something a little different. But if you want your joy to be strengthened and sustained, don't just pop in and pop out. Don't just hang around the edges of this family, press in. Stay for a cup of coffee after church when it feels awkward to do so. Be willing to, to stand there for a couple of minutes and, and not be talking to anyone. I do that sometimes, and I'm the pastor. I look around, and there's no one to talk to. And I'll, just, I'll just stand here until something happens. I don't like parties. I don't like that kind of thing, but that's one way. Overcome the discomfort and, and, and stay around. Other ways, especially as we move into the fall, join a pastorate. Our pastorates, they're based on Acts 2.42, that those kind of glad gatherings, that's what we want those to be. Um, go to a men's or a women's event. Go to a retreat. That's like fellowship on steroids. Got a few of those coming up. We need these supporting structures of joy to be with God's people because that sustains it. The third steel beam of joy is a priestly portion a priestly portion. Look at verses five and six. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Commentators have noted that the language he's using here brings to mind God's promised provision to his priesthood in the Old Testament to the Levites. So when God's people finally came into the promised land, uh, it was going to be divided up among the various tribes. And every tribe was going to get a portion of land, except the Levites. This was the tribe of priests. And God had a special, port, uh, special purpose for them, the special type of service. They were to serve in tabernacle and in temple. And they were to facilitate the worship of the living God and to represent God to the people and the people to God. That's what a priest does. And in their service, God promised that he would provide for them. In Numbers chapter 18, 
There's this long list of different types of offerings that people are making to God. And then it explains how the Levitical priests will get to enjoy those offerings. Because most of them were food and that's how they were going to feed themselves and feed their families. But after this long list of God's provision, the Lord said something surprising to Aaron, the first high priest. Numbers 18, verse 20, you shall have no inheritance in the land, neither shall you have any portion among them. Kind of sounds like a harsh word, doesn't it? All the other tribes get land. All the other tribes have real estate to pass on to their children. All the other tribes have means to grow their own food, to provide for themselves, to create a life for themselves, maybe even build a fortune. But not the Levites, not the priest. They were performing the most sacred and important acts in God's kingdom, but they get no land, no portion with their brothers. That doesn't seem fair, does it? But listen to what God says next. I am your portion. I am your inheritance among the people of Israel. No, you don't get land. No, you, you don't get real estate. You don't have the ability to create wealth. What you get instead is me. I am your portion. I am your inheritance. Yes, I'm going to provide food for you and your physical needs, but what you really get is me, the living God. Now flip back over to Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What's his cup? What's his portion? What's his inheritance? Is it real estate? Is it the ability to make a living? To be sure, that's a good gift. God gives it. But that's not what the psalmist is celebrating. He's rejoicing that God is his inheritance. And it is beautiful. It is pleasant. It is wonderful. Well, that's good for the Levites, isn't it? What happens to the Levitical priesthood, however, when we go to the New Testament? We know we have Jesus, the great high priest, and he, he kind of fulfills the, we well, didn't kind of, he fulfills the Levitical system. And so we would expect that, well, that's gone, that's done. And yet something continues, doesn't it? Who, who carries on that sacred duty of representing God to the people and the people to God? Who serves in God's great temple and cares for his sacred things? Who are those people to lead others into the sacred encounter of the living God? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the vision verse for our church. That's why we exist, to proclaim Christ. And how do we do that? As a priesthood. We're all the priesthood, friends. I wear a robe. I'm serving to priest as you, as you all serve to priest to the world. The church is the priesthood of God. Now within that, yes, there are priests, there are pastors, there are types of leaders to serve the church, but it's the whole church that's the priesthood. And what is this temple? It's not on the mountain Jerusalem. I saw it with my own eyes. It's not there anymore. So what would his temple be? What it was always intended to be, which was the whole world, the whole sacred creation that we are placed within to serve him. 
And we are called to be the people that point other people to God, that represent God to the people and the people to God and say, come and have this encounter. That's our high calling, is to be the priesthood of God under the great high priest Jesus. And what that means is that to us belongs the priestly portion. God will provide for all of our physical needs. Others may depend on themselves. They may depend on their ability to make a living, but we depend on God. We learn to take our daily bread from his hand. However it is that it comes, through a great job, through the grocery store, we know that it's God who's providing those things. But even more than our daily needs, we know that he is our inheritance. He is our portion. He holds our lot. He holds what happens to us, what's going to become of us. We don't need to stake our claim in this world and to fight for it because our heavenly father is our claim. A lot of people right now are fighting for the future of America because they believe that America is their inheritance and America is their portion and America with its wealth and its power and its glory is what they have to pass on to their children. But friends, if you follow Christ, hear this. Please hear this in this season. America is not your inheritance. It's not. Vote well, engage as citizens, of course, but that's not your inheritance. God has prepared for us a better country, and we long for it, and he's not ashamed to be our God. Go read Hebrews 11. We read Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6, and we see this priestly portion. The word that summarizes that is contentment. Contentment. God will provide for me. He holds my lot. He is my inheritance. He is my portion. And so when we take that to heart, our priestly portion, we can cultivate this contentment. And that contentment is absolutely critical to support joy. It's a steel post that stabilizes it. Without that contentment, then our joy will come and it will go with every change in the market, with every election, with every uncertainty that we face. Fourth and final steel post. Is a counselor worth staying up for? Look at verse seven. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel In the night, also, my heart instructs me. After college, I moved to Washington, D.C. I was working for a congressman, and I was part of a Christian community there, a very vibrant Christian community. It wasn't a church, per se. Um, There was an unofficial leader of this Christian community, and he was very revered. I had heard um, audio tapes of him talking before and and very much was taken with this person. He um, had met with a lot of people, including a lot of people in political power and and sort of discipled them towards Jesus. And so he was sort of the guy. And if you would ever get time with this guy, then you were lucky. You get to sit at his feet and talk with him. You were were lucky. That was something that was a lot of people wanted to do. Well, after about a year or so of being in D.C., I got this um, opportunity to go to Albania. And it was sort of an unofficial congressional trip, very interesting trip, where um, some of 
our political people went over and met with some people in that area of the uh, Balkan states and Macedonia and Kosovo, and, and people actually came together. And, you know, they got a lot of conflict in that region, and there's Muslims and Christians, and they all came together to have this prayer breakfast and actually talk about Jesus and try to in a non-religious way and see if that could be something that bring people together. So I don't know why, but I got to go. And there I was with one of my good buddies, and um, this guy, this, this leader guy was there. And I was taken with him. And then he, he actually asked a few of us to come to his room one night and, and say, come and we're going to have this time of discipleship. And so I went and I was so excited and I was like, man, I'm in. I'm with, I'm with this guy and I'm going to sit at his feet and he's going to... And so he starts talking and it was good. And I started to get a little tired. And I remember it's late at night, a lot of events of the day, and I'm having a hard time keeping my eyes open. So here's my opportunity finally to sit this guy's, and I'm, I'm getting more and more tired and more and more bored, and I just want it to be over. <laughs> I'm sure that if I had stayed up, it would have been good counsel, but I, I will tell you, there is a counselor worth staying up for. <laughs> and that is the wonderful counselor. That is the Lord. That is Jesus Christ. In the grand scheme of things, when, especially when we compare it to the religions of the ancient world, it is a surprising thing, really, and it is a wonderful thing that the God who created the heavens and the earth actually wants to communicate with us. He actually wants to tell us his will. We take it for granted. We have the Bible. We have church history. We have all these things, and yet that's not always the way it was in many religions that people were used to. You have this God who actually wants to communicate and beyond that have a relationship, but he actually wants to tell you things. Sometimes we think about God's commands and his instructions and his counsel and and we feel a little boxed in by it. feel a little like it's restricting our freedom. But as we actually take that counsel into our soul, we discover how sweet it is. We discover with David, Psalm 19, where he says the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. God's counsel isn't some freedom-restricting obligation. It's actually another path to joy. It's actually the instructions of how to get there. Seeking God's counsel, primarily we do that through Scripture, where it's revealed infallibly. But we also can do it through our own personal prayers, through the prayers of the saints, through devotional reading, fellowship, so on. This is a steel post. It's a foundation for our joy to make it stable. And I think this was the point that Jesus was trying to convey at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. He preaches this amazing sermon, and then he tells this short little parable about two men. One hears Jesus' words, and he does them. He takes the counsel. That guy's like a house who built his, like a, the guy who built his house on the rock. And we know what happened to that house. It endured. Flood and rains and wind did not fall. And then you had the other man. He heard the words, but he didn't take the counsel. And he built his house on the sand, and when hard times came, his house collapsed, and great was the fall of it. Psalm 8, and we'll wrap up with this. Psalm 16, I'm sorry, verse 8. The psalmist says, I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. I believe that we're actually invited to live, not to visit, but to live in the unshakable house of joy. 
that can be more and more normal for us. It doesn't have to be exceptional. It doesn't have to be, oh, that Christian, that person has joy. I don't. We can all grow into more and more abiding joy, the kind of joy that sticks around when you're having a bad day or when you're having a good day. But that kind of joy must be supported. It must have a structure. We need the radical singularity because there's only one source of good. We need a people to party with because joy is sustained in community. We need the contentment that belongs to our priestly portion, and we need a counselor worth staying up for. And as those things are placed in our lives, we'll find ourselves, sometimes without even realizing it, without the striving that we so often do, we'll just find ourselves joining the psalmist in his glad declaration of verse 9, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh dwells secure. Let us pray. And so, Lord, we ask that you would go to work in us, do some renovating in our hearts and souls, that more and more we might find strong posts that support a strong house of joy where we live our lives. Lord, we want to give you our willingness, our cooperation, but we know that we can do no things, nothing apart from you. And so as we abide, as we look to you, as we plug into you, we trust that you will grow us. And we pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.